This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie. This week we are covering Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. It is about to be released on streaming, uh, February 1st, I believe, Taylor. Yes. Still in theaters in some places. I just saw it in the theater this week. But if it's not around you now, it will be uh, widely available very, very soon. But this is kind of cut and dry for us. This is why the show exists. There's a lot to this material that nobody's ever <laughs> heard of before. Based on a book that then became another film that then this one is sort of based off of. And who Adaptations, knew any of that? Yeah. out the wazoo. And then we have somebody like Guillermo del Toro, which we haven't really had to talk about on the show yet, but uh, a filmmaker that I deeply appreciate mm -hmm. and I couldn't be more excited to be handling material like this. And so for somebody that typically does more supernatural, monstrous type esque right. things, always period pieces it was nice to see and again we're going to have to spoil the ending the 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 themes are the ending yeah that's the way it goes sometimes we're trying to put that out there so if you want to wait for the movie to come out for a couple days come back to us yeah. but with him doing something so supernatural is typically what you expect with him going into this i knew nothing about the plot at all and so i'm ready to see a monster and then lo and behold, we realize this is not a movie that has creatures, but of monsters of men. Right. So <laughs> I'll, I'll start there. But this has a long thread uh, of stuff to uncover. And I'm really excited to get to the bottom of it. Because his whole thing, he revels in period pieces and intricate set design and costumes. This is right up his wheelhouse. The book was written in 1946. And then the original movie was made in 47. So he's not having to set it in a previous time or like with Motherless Brooklyn, where it was about the it 90s, was, but then they brought yeah, it back. It was current when it was written. Right. <laughs> it was exactly <laughs> his jam. So we'll, we'll kind of like- They immediately made it into a movie, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into all that. I, I, mostly, like Evan said again, spoiling the ending because the endings are all slightly different, which I found fascinating. So they all have their own twist on what this actually means. But let's start where we mostly know things, which is Guillermo del Toro and his life mm -hmm. uh, getting into this. So this was actually one of the first things he ever wanted to do as a director. Really? And the way that he found out about this was Ron Perlman told him to read the book. Really? He and Ron Perlman were working on and they finished up Kronos, which was his first film, but it hadn't even come out yet. They were just working on it, and yeah, 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 and he had said, "Read this." So Guillermo didn't know about the film that came out in '47, and a big part of it was because Ron Perlman said, "Oh, I would love to play a character like this—a spiritual mm -hmm. charlatan, tent revivalist, carny, shuckster kind of guy." Yeah, and so then they both went to Fox, who owned the '47 film, and he. Guillermo basically said, they said, it's our library title, get away from here. He said, they didn't even validate our parking when we were, went there. Oh. Because it's like, oh my God. this guy that, I guess, you know, he's making a movie, but who is he? Right, we're not going to give right. you some legacy noir <laughs> title to, <laughs> to remake. <laughs> Go away. No, you cannot have the keys to my Rolls Royce. I don't care how old it is and no, that nobody's touched it in 40 yeah. years. And we're not paying for your parking either. Go away. So... <laughs> 
Very interesting, because I I was overwhelmingly getting this, you know, like knowing Shape of Water's huge success, winning Best Picture not mm-hmm. too long ago. Watching this in the first act, I was going, this is the thing that he was waiting to do. Right. Uh, he needed a Best Picture and some, for somebody to say, well, what do you want to do? To throw money at to- him. Yeah, so he doesn't mm-hmm. have to claw for the budget and prove himself. This is what he had in the pocket waiting. Right. So this is many, many years later then. His now wife, Kim Morgan, who is also the co-writer on this, she is a film journalist and historian. They're looking for something to do together since now they're together. And she suggested Nightmare Alley. And of course, the the big thing being, which we'll spoil here, the final scene. I mean, if if you're listening to this, hopefully you've seen it. But if not, basically, (laughs) the main character becomes the very thing he despises at the beginning, this carnival freak who is addicted seeking a fix and needs to be in this heinous lifestyle. Uh, the movie opens following basically a drifter who's looking for work at the at a carnival. And he ends up working there and along the way you you get into you you know it has this big build up to a creature this is right at the beginning of the of the film uh-huh. so it being a del Toro film you're ready to see a creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then the Carney exhibit is just what I immediately identified as a drugged out man. You yeah, know, yeah. I'm just, oh, oh, that is, oh, that's sad. And I, and I did at no point through over the next 10, 20 minutes, did I ever actually think, oh, that is the story that we're about to embark on mm-hmm. is th- that the creature, the, the head fake that I had just experienced that. No, that is the story. Just wait, uh, because I, I, you know, I went into it totally blind. Nightmare Alley, no idea what that means. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. I'm like, is it, it's, it's a scary? Are we doing ghosts? Is it, you know, a murder? Yeah. I, you know, I have no, I have no idea. And all I know is Guillermo del Toro, and generally what his movies uh, have. And so when we're building up to a creature, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. They have yeah, it. Yeah. They have a creature. And then I realized, oh no, we're in the real world where the creature is just a, 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 a strung out. Broken husk of a man. Yeah. 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 So with all of that, bringing it into the present tense, Del Toro was saying, aligning thematically with his own personal dismay over extremism in the current culture, he said, quote, we have this appetite for being lifted out of reality, even by the most impossible hucksters. Mm. We're willing to be lied to and accept it. So that's where he's coming from, from a personal angle of this. And it is a tragedy. This guy ends up stoop to that level because it's literally this guy who is addicted to alcohol or drugs usually alcohol well, in the, the older the, case the yeah. carney keeper has him hooked on unknowingly hooked on opium the carney the carney keeper is drugging him uh and and has slowly pulled him into it but starts uh, and it, and, yeah starts with just somebody who needs a drink yeah and and they play it off because the 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 it's not just a crazy person. It's like he's biting the heads off of chickens and snakes and doing crazy stuff, but it's all in service for the next fix, but it's slowly weaning them into that. The Carney Keeper, Willem Dafoe's character, after dropping off the, quote, creature at the hospital because he's having some sort of overdose freak mm-hmm. out, Bradley Cooper's interest was like, well, what? how, how did this happen? Who, who was that? that yeah, yeah. just threw in the gutter and waited on the, you know, the hospital staff to pick up. So Willem Dafoe uh, goes on this monologue, basically step by step, showing you how you would pull a, a you know somebody down on their luck 
into this, quote, job that's not a job at all. It's a slave and they are treating it like a, a real creature by the time you were actually really introduced to it in the yeah. film. Uh, he gives a very particular monologue about this process and how you pull somebody into this. And that becomes the ending scene, word for word. Now a new corny person is trying to pull Bradley Cooper's character in down that road. Right. And he's ready to go. It's the dichotomy of the carnival scene, especially at this time, and it's where the terminology, so you have the freaks, very pejorative, but it would be like Wolfman and the, you know, the, the oddity, the, yeah, all that and, yeah. kind of stuff. And then the other term is geeks, which then you hear, you know, there was a show called Freaks and Geeks, but that this is the term geek. I wasn't familiar with this, and so it colloquial, right, like, like picked it up as Willem Dafoe's character is using it in that monologue about how to pull in a geek he keeps calling it right so that is the other side of the carnival where it's like it's equally as bizarre and scandalous to somebody paying a ticket for the price of admission because it's like oh no that's not somebody who was born that way that's somebody who is actively wild and obscene mm -hmm. interestingly with this book that came out in 46 nightmare alley this is really what popularized the term geek in the context of this because it was always a mm -hmm. term in carnivals and in the scene, but it really be went to the to the public and is kind of the first major instance of this being in the public sphere. And literally the term is in, in German is geck and it means a fool or a simpleton. Uh, and then it just gets mutated in the English language. With all of that, sad, depressing, <laughs> he goes from bad to worse. All along See, and this is, I, want, I just want to put a, a, a little like highlight on this yeah. because this is such an interesting thing for Guillermo to be tackling because like I'm saying, I'm going into this shape of water, baby. Yeah. Show me some, we're going with, a, she's falling in love with the, with the, you know. Monster, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I almost brushed it off as soon as the, as soon as the geek is introduced as the, as the show, mm -hmm. as soon as he sh they show you the show. I'm like, oh, that's just, that's a junkie. Right. Where's the plot? You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like trying to like look past that going like, oh, that's sad. That's, oh, oh God, I did not, it, this, and this is the, the highlight I want to make is like, this is not, I did not expect Guillermo to do something so real. <laughs> uh, the, because this, I make, I'm going in where it's highly stylized. It's a period piece. We're at the carnival. You have all, yeah. you have all, all the sideshow attractions you could dream of. And it's all with his flair. And so I am, oh yeah, they've got it. They got, they got a monster. And no, 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 no. This is the real world. Sort of uh, genius marketing on their part. The fact that it's him because you know, that's what you're expecting. Yes. And then you get a bit more of a human story. Less. It, took, it full on took me 10, 15 minutes to, <laughs> to like be like, oh, are we, re oh, we're telling the story of how that happened. I like, yeah, this is just as, a period as, drama. Yeah. As Defoe is giving his, his monologue, I'm going, no way. This can't, no, 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 no. You know, it wasn't, a, it, it really, it took up until the monologue for me to go, wow, this is what this is going to be. And the yeah. monologue is, 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 I mean, that's the end of the first act, basically. And then Bradley Cooper's character goes on to do his own show. Yeah. That's the large swath of the second act. And it is two and a half hours. So, yeah. So hold on to that thought with Guillermo trying to do something a little fake. bit yeah. different. Yeah. And let's jump to, because all of that and the seriousness and the style and the tone led me to want a refresher on noir yes. because it's such a vague term in my mind. And I see Venetian blinds and a 
detective with a cigar, but I don't even really know if that's what right. I'm supposed to be thinking of. Right. I would love to define it much like we were, de- you know, defining sat- satire right. and you know, that to pull it out here because we this is a, a genre we haven't really we haven't yeah. really discussed much. Yeah, we talked about like hard boiled crime stuff with Motherless Brooklyn, mm-hmm. with noir, and you'll be unsatisfied as I was. There's such an array of pieces that it is or it isn't because gangster films can sometimes be called this police procedurals, but it then extends past crime because this one isn't even really crime or a mystery. There's also gothic romance or just straight up melodramas. Yes. And then not yes. even tied to a place. Sometimes it's the city, but there's also suburban, rural, there's road movies. You could even say like, oh, well, there's always a femme fatale, a right. bad woman. But like a lot of them don't even have that. So some people, it's, this is the big debate. Some people say it's not even a genre, but it's actually mm-hmm. just a mm-hmm. style. Right. And that a style encompasses kind of like with screwball comedy. It's so hard to pin down. It's an amalgamation of things that potentially contribute to that. But there really is no consensus filmically on what a noir story. So doesn't help us at all. But I, I can kind of <laughs> lay out some of the things that you would see. And the, just to keep us on track, the 40s and to the 50s is, is what people call the classic period of noir films. So the original movie fits right in line with that coming out in mm-hmm. 47. Most of them are B-movies, not big studio stuff. Personally, I think they were hiding everything in shadow. <laughs> we don't have money to dress that. Yeah, yeah, Perfect. yeah. Drop it in shadow. Perfect. Yeah. So you're pointing to one of the biggest piece of stylings is light and shadow and things in obscurity. You're dead on with that. Silhouette, baby. <laughs> yeah. The structure stuff could be experimental. Flashback was a big thing, maybe even the entire narrative. Also encompassing with voiceover where somebody's like, you'll never believe what happened to me, right? Oh, know, yes. Like yes, Sunset classic. Boulevard where the person's dead at the beginning and then it's them talking about how they died, that kind of right. thing. Along with that, the plots then being mostly crime, murder, jealousy, con games, existentially bitter heroes. And with that, the tone as we've discussed, pessimistic, trapped, doomed being the big word. Like there is no good end. Although I thought, uh, interesting with that, people point to a lot of moral ambiguity, but the more I was looking into this with the Hayes Code, which we talked about last week with slasher movies and how Psycho opened it up in the 60s, most of these noir things coming out because of this code, they were obliged to show that virtue was rewarded and vice was punished, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It still did not end well, or the detective is in dire straits, but it was never like totally nihilistic for most of them in film land. Interesting. The book side of things was developed separately. Literature was developing from the late 20s, but only in a small portion. The work really exploded, which we take so much for granted now, but the paperback original was a whole new medium that started in 1949 because oh the, the paperback was all reprints of a hardcover. I did not realize it was that late. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So from the 1950s onwards, this is this is how then mm-hmm. all of these stories literarily are booming. And because of they're not, they don't have to be published, serialized in magazines, and they can just churn them out, and they can be a little bit more nihilistic in the literary scene gotcha. than in the yeah, films yeah. coming out. 
So that leads us to this film that we teased that came out the year after the book. We're Hot going on it, huh? <laughs> we're going chronologically reverse to make sense of this, but 1947, and all this ties into what we talked about before with Guillermo. So the leading man on this, Tyrone Power, I didn't know him, but he was huge in 30s, 40s. He had rom- mm-hmm. ro- big romantic swashbuckling roles. He was Zorro in the sound version, Mark of Zorro. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Douglas Fairbanks was the original black and white silent swashbuckling one, but then Tyrone Power comes in and he's got all the big oh my gosh. daring romantic roles. Yeah. World War II comes around. I mean, super cool dude. He enlisted in the Marines. He already had pilot solo experience. So they fast fast tracked him to being a pilot. He flew missions carrying cargo and wounded out of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. What? That's it. <laughs> he won three That's medals. Amazing. Yeah. And uh I mean he has a star on the walk of fame as well as he was buried with full military honors. Aww. He's just this American stud. So yeah. what's interesting about that, talking about Guillermo wanting to subvert what he is, what he's done, what you think. Yeah. So Tyrone has buckled enough swash, so to speak, <laughs> and he reads this book in 46, and he says to the head of 20th Century Fox, who he's under contract with, I want you to buy this novel so I can be an unsavory lead. Mmm, gotcha. Good, okay. Reminds me a lot of James Bond and Connery mm-hmm. and those guys who mm-hmm. said, or like you said with Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, where they're saying, I want to do I want to do counter to what people know me as. People think I'm this, but I want to be thought in this light. Yeah. I want to be this bad guy who descends into suffering. <laughs> so, I was actively thinking about that over the course of the film is how mm-hmm. interesting it is in narratives where you shouldn't like the protagonist. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and that seems very hard for modern audiences at times to understand or swallow, but that, that it it's so important if you're doing it the right way and I think that I think we we touched on this a little bit with like talking about uh you know just setting the right example and <laughs> what are, what are people getting out of? I mentioned Jordan Belfort and right. like Frat Boys recently. Um, I, if you do it the right way, hopefully you're along the way to, oh gosh, look at where it's getting them, you know, oh, where, right. look you at have, where yeah. it's winding them up we have so, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have so many prescriptive tales, which are superheroes and Spider-Man, and this is the right way to do things. But there is also the cautionary tale of don't yes. do this or this will happen. So yes. Tyrone Power wants to be in one of those movies. What is unusual with him, because he is so big, this 47 Nightmare Alley attracts other top stars, top production staff, large budget for the time. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> Similar <laughs> to Guillermo, they built a full working carnival on 10 acres in the Fox back lot. No they, way. Yeah. They <laughs> hired 100 sideshow attractions and carnival people and oh then also shot at the San Diego County Fair. Huge deal. So yeah. the thing with it, though, released at the height of the Hayes Code, as I mentioned. So the brutality... Mm-hmm. Probably immediately mm-hmm. in Guillermo's work is absent entirely from this one. They don't even show, since I'll post a link, the whole movie is available on YouTube. Oh, cool. So, so, but even just the first scene where he goes up, he's the drifter look, going to the carnival. They don't even show the geek doing any, uh, you know, it's just the crowd and they gasp and then he walks away. Uh, okay. The other thing. So this is the first sort of ending that we're going to talk about that's different. The Fox chief was really worried about this ending. 
that was going to happen. So in this version, Molly, who is one of his and main love interest, mm -hmm. comes back and gets him, giving us some sort of hope. Oh. He comes to and she says, oh, I'm here for you or something like that. So th that was the- Very different. The studio's glimmer of, this isn't totally foregone. Maybe he can get out of this again. But see, it's so interesting because the whole movie is built up to, you can't, you can't push people like this. You cannot keep pushing people like this. Eventually, they will have enough, which yeah. very much is, you know, that's what yeah. uh, the Rooney Mara character says by the end of it. Uh, you cannot keep pushing. So what does it say at the end of, of your film <laughs> yeah. where you, you've had somebody who just keeps taking, keeps pushing, keep what? Mm -hmm. and then And then they just get them back because you know like that and what i watched is it, it it's what is the yeah. narrative saying it's literally <laughs> like the last 15 seconds because he's on a ramp he's he's out he's off the rails he's on a rampage in the carnival and then she runs up and says oh my god it's stan and that and then i was wrong i shouldn't yeah. have stood up for my boundaries you know like what yeah. what yeah so it's just that's amazing to make to make sense of it guillermo's is more in line because in the novel he's doomed until he drinks himself to death it's it's implied there's nobody coming for him the movie when it came out the 47 one mixed reviews some people liked it, some people didn't, but was a box office flop because mm. they ha really didn't have much muscle behind the marketing. Fox was worried, well, we're not going to promote our head honcho guy as some tortured, messed up meanie. In a movie that nobody liked. <laughs> <laughs> so he went, he went back to hunk idol and went back to his swashbuckling roles, although the film gained acclaim over the years as mm -hmm. being a quintessential noir right smack in the middle of where it was needed. Um, mm. Although one of the reasons Guillermo never saw the film and probably none of us did, long, murky legal battle between the studio and the film's producer. Oh, God. Putting it out into the market. So this did not hit home video until the DVD release in 2005. Oh, my God. I was, I was sitting there, don't say 2000. <laughs> don't, say, don't say 2000. The only way you could watch this is if it was shown on TV or you had a 16 millimeter rental. Oh, my God. And you went to some film school or film club or something. Oh, my gosh. So almost a lost film in that way. Yeah, nearly. That now finally leads us to Tyrone Power read this book. What is yeah, that? And we have yeah. two people who read it and went, I must dedicate a significant <laughs> portion of my my life and energy to this. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. must be there must be something in those pages and uh, <laughs> who put it there? Yeah. And his life. And I will say very again, in with the tone of this, very sad I mean, we're laughing sort of, but like very sad. We have this to is keep it light, Taylor. This yep. is edutainment. <laughs> right. But it just his his story is rather tragic. William Lindsay Gresham is the author. He wrote this, his first novel. He was working as a true crime pulp magazine editor in the 40s. So he knows a little bit. He, he was always true a writer. Crime. Yeah. I like the book in the sense of the one of the narrative devices is each chapter is a different tarot card. Oh, yes. And they it, it deals with the themes of what's going on. And so the first chapter is the fool and the last chapter is the hanged man. Yeah, which I know they make allusions to in the film beautifully. Uh, midway through the the film, um, Zena does his tarot card reading, and mm -hmm. is you're 
dead on (laughs) the hanged man at the end. And so you're left to be thinking like, oh man, who is going to kill him? How is he going to be killed? How, how is he going, you know, how is he going to meet his end? And then beautiful, beautiful Mm -hmm. uh, allusion to the uh, illustration on the tarot card at Mm -hmm. the end, once he's completely fallen and they are after him, uh, he winds up in a a shipping train car and the camera, uh, the camera does a turn up above him and it turns him upside down and he's in an exact matching position of the hanged man on the card. It was absolutely stunning. Yeah. So, no, and like you said, nobody is nobody is coming for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has done it to himself, and it is and it is over. It, yeah, he might yeah. as well be. Yeah. So with William Lindsay Gresham, obviously he knows tarot cards. If he's uh, making each chapter <laughs> the cardinal ones, as far as the carnival life stuff, he did he did not work in a carnival, although he was sort of symbiotically attached to that life. Later years, he volunteered as a knife thrower's assistant and he was friends with animal trainers and magicians. He worked as a publicist for a circus. He had Mm, his fingers in it because he was perpetually curious. He wrote Nightmare Alley in a Manhattan hotel called the Dixie where vaudeville and carnival acts would swap stories in the lobby. Oh, yes. Very good. So he gets all piece of it. But where, where did he hear about all this in the first place? He had done odd jobs. He came from a broken home. It was, I, I think it would have been rare to have divorced parents in the 1920s. Yeah. But that is where he came from, and it's also where the main character of this gets a lot of his path in life, he feels, is directed by that. Mm-hmm. So at the point in William's life where he hears about the carnival, he had already had two marriages fall apart. He is trying to find direction in life, joins the Communist Party, serves as a volunteer medic during the Spanish Civil War overseas. And he's sitting at a bar waiting to go back to the U.S. after this. And he's drinking with this guy who was a former carnival worker. And this is the guy who explains to him what a geek is and all that they do just to get some booze. And William is absolutely horrified how someone gets there. Also, with all of this, William is struggling with alcohol abuse and depression, Mm. so it just really hits him. He Uh, instantly sees how he could become that. Yeah. How there's a path leading directly to it, basically at his feet. Yeah. He is not doing well. At some point, when he goes back to the U.S., he tried to commit suicide and hang himself. Oh, my gosh. But it didn't work, and he was in interestingly in therapy trying to get psychoanalysis trying to understand taking all of these different angles to figure himself and his life out and this existential dread moves to tarot card readings other things he had said in terms of the psychoanalysis he said uh his six years of therapy both saved him and failed him because he said, quote, I found that I could not stop drinking. I had become physically an alcoholic and against alcoholism in this stage, Freud is powerless. Oh, my gosh. So he leaves psychoanalysis. This is where he gets into editing the true crime magazines, marries a third time this woman, Joy, who is also a writer and a communist. So mm. it's and they, I guess you could say, seem to work off of each other. Interesting. And this is where he publishes Nightmare Alley. You can see. Definitely at this time, him looking at and in Nightmare Alley, both of the both the femme fatale and the main character, bad people like the it, looking at psychology and this yeah. sort of con artist spiritualist 
A lot of, I mean, honestly, showing how everybody in the, most of the, the main characters in the film have a grift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and exemplifying how everybody has their, has their game. Uh, are you, are you part of their game unknowingly? Um, yeah. Yeah. This is a, William, the author is a man searching for meaning and being in his mind and in reality shunt, especially with the alcoholism shunted from finding what he's looking for. Yeah. Like I said, though, Tyrone Power reads the book. It did pretty well. Hollywood bought it. For sixty thousand dollars, you know, like yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. a he's got a Hollywood deal um, in nineteen forty seven money. That's big. <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, he moved to a huge house in New York uh, with his wife. It was yeah. it was big. With the book's release for thirty years after the first publishing, every edition was corrupted or censored. Really, there was a lot of more graphic stuff, which I won't say, but it, it's uh, it was reduced. Oh, wow. By outside editors. And what's interesting, there's another thematic that does not get inserted as much, which I alluded to when Ron Perlman was interested in adapting Mm -hmm, it, because mm -hmm. it's more to do in the book with Stan becoming this spiritualist swindler. He actually Mm -hmm. becomes a certified reverend for a time in the book, obviously, because it's longer, also starts a church. So there is more of that questioning of religion as well. Is that also part of that? Oh, that's very interesting. Again, what I'm saying is that everybody in the movie basically has a grift. This is a movie about grifters. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a bigger part of the book. And I had even seen somebody was saying in the new age self-help movement, at least the con artists and grifters, there were there was there's a code you might say, you might say, you may know my friend Stan Carlisle to allude like I'm hip to the scam that you're doing. I'm uh, we're we're yeah. in on this together kind of thing, which is the main character of this book's name. So that even became a part of that in in the more new age religious con artist schemes. Back to William, he has all this money now, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have financial struggles, obviously, because it's it's a blessing and a curse if you don't know what to do with it or how or you you have your own issues. Yeah. So he's hounded with tax problems. He's also very infidelious and continues drinking. They have to sell off the house to pay the oh, debts. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, Distancing himself from his wife, his wife starts to deny communism. She's on her way to embracing Christianity hmm. alongside her becoming ill and getting cancer. And hmm. this is a total left field thing, also involved in writing, but she begins this correspondence and friendship with none other than C.S. Lewis in England. What? what? Writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. And yeah. As he's writing about Christianity and she's learning about Christianity. And at this point, William has dabbled in so many things. He's dabbled in Marxism, in Zen, in tarot, in psychoanalysis. Yeah. He did. He joined AA. He was, like I said, the spiritualist movement, which we talked about in uh, Ghostbusters. Right, episode. yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan Aykroyd, that's, that's that kind of thing. He even, there was a new thing in 1950 called Dianetics, this book, which is uh, Scientology, yeah. he he looked at, which oh, he then, God. of course, declared a racket as well. But just all yeah. of this stuff, he's not finding any uh, help from his pains. And uh, he's, I mean, gosh, <laughs> I mean, how interesting you get somebody that's just like testing it out. What is mm-hmm. this? What is it about? What is what's the message? Mm-hmm. Oh, 
oh, no, that's the point. Oh, that's the secret point behind it. Moving on to the next thing. That's exactly the kind of person you want to be writing. Somebody who has been Mm -hmm. been earthy enough to come into contact with some of this stuff enough to be, oh, to kind of get the picture behind it instead of just devoting your life into one direction and knowing nothing about anything else. Yeah. Uh, This is the mind of a writer. Somebody who's like at least looked around (laughs) Mm -hmm. to understand what in the world else is going on out there. Yeah. Um, that's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. It's unfortunate that his experience and understanding of all of these carnival workers does, in a sense, color his perceptions yeah. of all of these other methods of finding meaning in the world. Yeah. So his second novel, the only other novel that he wrote, came out in 1949 in the midst of all of this and mm. didn't do well, didn't go anywhere, didn't mm. become anything. His wife, Joy goes to meet C.S. Lewis in England. And during this time, William has an affair with her cousin who is watching their kids in their house. So he and Joy divorce, and Joy actually goes back and marries C.S. Lewis. Oh, my God. In 1956. Oh, my God. And then passes away four years later of her cancer. This is probably the the, the strangest thing that I found of all of this. There is a movie about all of this, came out in 1993 called Shadowlands, and it stars Anthony Hopkins as C.S. Lewis. I had no idea. But of course, William Gresham is not, you know, it's, it's, it's about him and her and her illness and him questioning his faith and all of that stuff. And he is the guy who is off in America cheating on her. But he oh is a God. secondary character in this other story about C.S. Lewis in, in most people's lives. Wow. So once Joy passes, Gresham goes to England. C.S. Lewis is basically his son's adopted father. And so C.S. Right. Lewis then cares for Gresham's sons thereafter. Two years later, William Gresham is starting to go blind and is also diagnosed with cancer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just peril upon peril. Yeah. He wrote three other books in this time, nonfiction. One called Monster Midway, which is exposing all the carnival schemes. Oh, really? He also wrote a biography on Houdini, again, exposing a lot of his tricks. What? He's calling out Houdini. (laughs) And then he also wrote, the last book he wrote was called The Book of Strength, which was this young man's guide to bodybuilding. Interesting. In In this time, he wrote to his son, in England, and very rare to find you know, personal correspondence of his, but he had said to his son, a professional writer with no other income has to produce and keep producing whether his heart is in it or not, and over the years, this seems to take a lot out of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what he wrote to his son David in 62, which in September of 62, he checked into the same hotel where he wrote Nightmare Alley, oh, wow. and under a pseudonym... So nobody knew who he was, and he killed himself with sleeping pills in the hotel room. He was 53. When they found him on his person, he had business cards, but they didn't have any name on them. And literally, like in the corner where they're supposed to be an address are the words, no address. And in the other corner, it says, no phone. And on the bottom, it says, no business. And then on the other side, it says, no money. That's what he was left with. My gosh. So that is the... uh, the unfortunate, sad ending to his situation. Well, for anybody who has seen the film, yeah, I think that the uh, parallels there speak for themselves um, in terms of just the the overall 
thematics, the tragedy of all of this, that it yeah. is authentically pulling from um, from a real place. Yeah. I did want to bring up the ending, since we are at the end, one more time. And the way that I found they're sort of different, which we had already said a little bit of, but but very, very subtly. So the ending line of the book, he's drunk and looking for work, and the carny grifter says, of course, it's only temporary just until we get a real geek. And that's the last line of the book. So you don't even see him deteriorate. That's, That's very much how the current film ends, Yes, essentially. The old film is very similar to that, except for, of course, him getting saved. <laughs> but the line that is, the last line he says before he accepts the job is he, Tyrone Power says, I was made for it, mm. implying that he became this. Del Toro mm. pulls from the film, even mm-hmm. though he says he's pulling from the book, because the, the line that Bradley Cooper says, he says, I was born for it. Yes. And there's something, even though it's subtle, very different thematically. Right. The difference between becoming a thing and having been always a thing. Um, yeah. And feeling completely hopeless to, yes. to the, the whims of fate. Born for it, meaning there were, you had no choice. You had no agency in this. You were born for it. This is what you were always going to be. Yeah. The other way around is I fell into it. This is what came to me. Mm. Born says... A lot. Yeah. yeah. So I just thought that that was interesting that Del Toro would take that line from the old movie because it's not in the book, but he changed the line from the 47 film to say something very different yeah. about what he thinks about noir, or what he thinks about people or that character. Because in a way, it's, yes. a, it's a sad thing where he, 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 it's tragic that he believes that. Maybe he, he doesn't actually need to believe that. It speaks yeah. to the thematics of the father. The father is a looming piece of this that uh, you yeah. only get the the full picture of right at the end. Um, but you tease it at the beginning, and we get glimpses of it uh, through the edit until we understand that oh, he he despised his father and actually murdered his father. <laughs> yeah. But then if he's born for it, he is his father. So then is this saying that he has no other, he will, he is, I hate, if you hate him, then do you hate yourself? Because you are him. Yeah. If you were born for this, you don't have, a, you don't have a choice. Uh, I think that that, I think that's right in line. Choosing the, the word born for this is trying to cut through straight to the dad yeah. character there. Yeah, no, no, nothing supernatural about that at all. Just... Nature versus nurture. Yeah, like I said, I just had no, I had no concept that Guillermo was gonna go this real. This is as dead real as it gets, and it's coming from a filmmaker. You expect total fantasy, other world realms, creatures, um, and telling, telling a, a cutthroat real story. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let us know what you thought about it. Uh, let us know if, uh, if what what you make of this type of story. Were you expecting something more fantastic from Guillermo? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get in touch with us <laughs> uh, at Illiterate Pod on Instagram. Let us know what you're interested in. Let us know what you are reading or watching. You never know when we're going to do an episode on that thing you want to know all about. Um, and we will catch you next week. Thank you.